Hi, everyone. Welcome to a special episode of The Carbon Curve. I'm your host, Naeem Merchant, and this is a podcast about the collective action approach needed to remove billions of tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and fend off the worst effects of climate change. So today I wanted to try something a little bit different with this podcast. Um, you know, since I've transitioned my career into working on carbon dioxide removal, I've gotten a lot of people asking me about how I got interested in this field, how I got to where I am, where I think the field is going, and if I have any advice on making this career shift to working in climate. And so I thought I'd use this specially timed podcast episode to switch things up a little bit and let someone else ask me questions for a change and to, I guess, share some of my own insights and perspectives on uh, working in this field and where I think it's going. And hopefully people who are interested in carbon removal uh, or just working in climate more broadly will find this useful. So the person who's going to be actually interviewing me today is my wife, Rahima Dosani. Uh, Rahima works in global health at the U.S. Agency for International Development, where she helps scale up access to cutting-edge health interventions for some of the world's poorest countries. She also worked for the Clinton Health Access Initiative in Malawi, which is where we first met, and in Myanmar after healthcare strategy consulting in New York City. Rahima holds a BA from the University of Pennsylvania and an MBA from the Harvard Business School, as well as a Master's in Public Health from the Harvard School of Public Health. She spends her spare time teaching yoga and being a private chef in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the show, Rahima. Thank you so much for that kind introduction. I'm super excited to be on the show and give you a chance to let folks hear more about your path. I will say that I've personally been super impressed and inspired by seeing how far you've come in this field in only the last three years. So I'm excited to get started. Yeah, well, I would say I've only been able to, I think, really break into this field because I've had your support over the last few years. I I mean, starting to work in carbon removal, which is a a very niche space within climate, uh, it was a a big leap. It was a big change in my career. And uh, I definitely could not have done it without your your support. That is kind. And that makes it a little challenging to be as tough on you as I want to be during this podcast, but I'll do my very best. So just before we get started, I wanted to let you all know that I stutter, so I'll be pausing on certain things sometimes, and I appreciate you all just being patient with me. Thank you. So let's get started with our first question. I'm curious to hear what your most controversial opinion about something is in carbon removal. It's really hard to come up with something that's really controversial in terms of my view on this. I think, I think first of all, just being someone who thinks that we need to do carbon dioxide removal is somewhat controversial in and of itself. You know, I think a lot of people, you know, I think still don't see kind of the role that carbon dioxide removal can play in addressing climate change. And so I think, you know, just being someone who thinks we need to do this and, you know, need to be a big part of our response to addressing climate change over the coming decades is in, a, in and of itself, I think, still a little controversial. I think within carbon dioxide removal, one view I have that I think is maybe not controversial, but definitely 
I, I think definitely something that people would, would debate and quibble over is that I think that there are forms of what we call carbon dioxide removal right now that probably shouldn't be called carbon dioxide removal. So, so for example, you know, short duration carbon removal methods like uh, reforestation, afforestation, and soil carbon sequestration. So these are methods that are uh, have been shown to be able to obviously remove carbon from the atmosphere. Plant, planting trees removes carbon from the atmosphere, absolutely. Um, but I kind of see that their co-benefit that they offer is carbon removal. And so, um, you know, Robert Hugland and climate scientist Zeke Housefather and a few others wrote an article recently saying, let's call those activities uh, nature restoration as opposed to carbon removal. And I think that they're right. I think that you know, carbon removal should probably apply to methods that are able to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere in a measurable, additional, and permanent way. And we can define permanence as like 100 years, hundreds of years, or 1,000 years, or whatever, but it's probably longer than the carbon storage that you would see from, uh, a, you know, a, a reforestation project or a soil carbon sequestration project. And so from my view, I think what would be helpful is if we kind of said, let's call forestry, reforestation, afforestation, and soil carbon sequestration and similar shorter duration methods that are kind of more nature-based, nature restoration, and, and, uh, and assess those, um, those interventions on a much more holistic basis than their potential to remove carbon from the atmosphere because there's a lot of really good reasons to protect forests or do reforestation or, um, or improve soil health beyond their carbon benefits, and we should do those things no matter what. But I think it becomes problematic when we call those things carbon removal, and then companies, for example, then buy carbon credits from reforestation or soil carbon sequestration projects to offset, if you will, their carbon emissions. Um, so they emit carbon that's going to be out in the atmosphere for centuries, and then they use you know, hard-to-measure, not necessarily additional all the time, and very low permanence methods to counteract their actual carbon emissions. And I think that's problematic. And so if we can find a way to separate that out from carbon removal and call that nature restoration, I think that would I think that would just be a more a more accurate and more holistic description of what those interventions actually are. And we should do those in a way that is not being used to kind of offset actual carbon emissions. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I will say, so I'm thinking back to your first post on Carbon Curve, which is when when you created a, a post on why forestry offsets are not sufficient. And so myself, you know, being a non-climate change person, I would say this is what got me really excited about and interested in the topic overall of permanent Carbon removal. I think I had been, you know, taught that planting trees is great. Planting trees is what's going to save us all. But I'm curious, can you share a bit more about pushback you may have gotten on that first post? I know it was way back when. Yeah, that was way back when. I, I think, I think that was it was kind of hard to put myself out there and just that was one of my first posts or probably my first post, like you said, around forest offsets. I think I call them the fatal design flaw and carbon offsets or something like that. And I, th I think it's still one of my more popular po posts somehow. Uh, 
That was, first of all, I think planting trees is great. I think planting trees is going to, you know, is going to save us all. I think we should totally do that. You know, I think that, but I think that when they're used as offsets, they're abused essentially. And my big point around that is like, you know, it's hard to measure their impact, uh, the impact of, you know, forestry-based projects uh, that are used as carbon offsets. It's hard to make the case of additionality, you know, whether that forest would have been protected in the absence of that financing. And it's, you know, yeah, they're not, you know, they're not particularly permanent in a way that is, I think, relevant on a climate or human time scale. And so, like, that's a problem. Like, that's, and, and instead of, like, bashing individual actors who I think have all the right intentions to, to, to find ways to get money to protect forests and plant trees, we just need to recognize that, no, this is more of a, like a systemic issue, that there's some key design flaws in, in forestry projects that make them suboptimal as offsets. And I haven't gotten a lot of pushback from that, except for the fact that I think people then kind of label you as someone who doesn't like nature. And I know you... <laughs> Yeah, I know. I know where you're going to go. I, you call me the great endorsement for good reason. So maybe that sticks. But I think the idea was just like, I, you know, I think it's great that we try to do things to, you know, protect forests and restore forests and all of that. But I think that they're as an offset are just poorly designed to do that job and then are very easily abused by folks who are just trying to do a lot of greenwashing. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes a ton of sense. And I think it's cool that you had the courage to, you know, create a first post that took such a strong st st stance. So let's move on. Um, next question I'm curious about. So as you were making the transition into carbon removal, can you tell us about, you know, who perhaps might have been the most influential or inspiring person or company? Benny, to you. So the most inspiring organization, I would say, for me in making this transition was Carbon 180. This is a, you know, for those who don't know, a policy think tank, nonprofit organization that, you know, advances carbon dioxide removal policy in the United States. They're also very, very kind of in touch with entrepreneurs and scientists and research uh, and, and research that's ongoing around carbon removal. Uh, and they just do really wonderful work. And I think when we see a lot of the carbon removal wins from a policy perspective here in the United States, you know, that stuff didn't happen by accident. That happened because you have this group of, group of individuals who uh, I think are trying to approach carbon dioxide removal in a really, really thoughtful way, you know, putting a lot of their energy behind advancing carbon removal policy. That's just um, that's just smartly designed and, you know, centered around equity and justice is promoting different forms of kind of carbon removal innovations around different methods. So I would say Carbon 180 was the most inspiring group um, when I was making this shift into carbon removal because they're just, I just saw them as, you know, high energy, very dynamic, very, you know, very dedicated, committed and focused and very humble group of people who wanted to see carbon removal be part of the broader picture and how we how we address climate change. So taking a step back, tell us briefly about your 10-year career that you had before you got into climate ch change. 
I'm glad you only asked for the last 10 years because before that 10 years, I was an accountant. Uh, you know, The most interesting time of your career, if I do say so. Yeah, definitely the most interesting part of my career was out of, you know, out of university. I was, I, I was an auditor with a large accounting firm. Uh, and so I can read financial statements like really well. Like I can, I can like do math really fast. Like I learned all that stuff. You know, I just have a hard time picturing you being that detail oriented. You know what? It, it's interesting being an accountant actually made me less detail oriented in a weird way because it taught you when you're looking at numbers and you're staring at numbers all day, like how to look at something and go, that's material or nope, that's not material. I don't need to worry. So I was really worried that I was just going to come out to like super, you know, detail oriented, like in the weeds all the time type of person. And, and that's not at all what happened. I actually like learned a lot of really great stuff in that experience around like how businesses work and how organizations run. But at the same time, just it was... Uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was interesting. It was not for me, and so I I found a way to work in in international development and global health. First with the Clinton Health Access Initiative, based in Malawi, had no public health or international development experience, but they needed people who were good at Excel, and I was an accountant, so it really worked. My role was basically to work with the government of Malawi to help scale up programs that improved access to healthcare for folks who who traditionally lack access to healthcare in one of the poorest countries in the world. And, you know, very quickly doing that, you know, realized I was very lucky to get a chance to work on this and help solve some of these important problems. One of them being, you know, how do you, how do we increase the number of nurses and midwives trained in universities in Malawi to increase the nurses and midwives in the country? Cause there was an emergency shortage of healthcare workers there. And that was a really cool problem to get to work on. And then later it was, you know, an, a series of projects around increasing access to HIV medicines and diagnostics um, in a country where north of 10% of the population is HIV positive. You know, that was really, uh, really formative for me because I got to try to figure out how do we scale up access to something that people said was going to be too expensive for people, right? And, uh, you know, I think it was an opportunity for me to basically learn, like, how do you shape markets in a way that can make products uh, and services more accessible to people and drive down the cost and help scale them up. And so it's that thinking that I still kind of access today in my current work in carbon removal is like, how do we drive down the cost of this technology? How do we um, scale it up? Uh, how do we make this public good, which is carbon removal as a public good? How do we make it more accessible? So I also had an opportunity to work at an organization called Last Mile Health. Uh, shortly thereafter, and I joined that organization kind of in the latter half of the Ebola crisis that was happening in Liberia and then across West Africa at the time. And this was an organization that was founded, you know, and started in Liberia um, by a Liberian who uh, was a refugee to the United States from Liberia during the Civil War there. And he'd returned to Liberia to start this organization to expand access to health care and uh, through the use of community health workers who are like kind of door-to-door -door health workers who provide essential health services like testing for malaria and other, you know, um, and other diseases. You no, know, my role there was to help scale up a national community health worker program when I was with Last Mile Health. And that was a really great experience because it was an opportunity to work with, you know, people all across the government in Liberia and the NGO community and, you know, community-based organizations to figure out like what's it going to take to help um, make 
the this model of healthcare, which is you know healthcare that um, goes to the last mile and reaches people where they are, a central pillar of your healthcare system, as opposed to an afterthought. Uh, and how do we finance it? And how do we design it in a way that provides high quality healthcare to people? You know that it's tempting to find ways to do that on the cheap, and and we wanted to avoid that. And so, I spent a number of years with Last Mile Health figuring that out, and and that was a really exciting opportunity. And I got a chance to work with just another group of really wonderful, humble people who just really wanted, really believed in the potential to expand access to healthcare to people who don't have have access to. Super, super inspiring. Thank you for sharing. And I want to pick up on one thing that you said initially, which is around, you know, the parallels that were that you were drawing between your work in driving down the cost of HIV medicines and, you know, perhaps how prohibitively expensive some carbon dioxide removal technologies currently are. So I'm curious, you know, what do you think needs to happen to bring CDR down the cost curve and make it more accessible? Uh, That's a really good question. I think that there's two kind of key parallels between my work in helping, you know, scale up access to HIV medicines and bring down the cost of HIV medicines. And then, you know, and then what, what I'm trying to do now, which is help drive down the cost of carbon removal. First of all, with, as far as HIV medicines are concerned, 25 years ago, in sub-Saharan Africa, there were probably tens of thousands of people on HIV treatment. And today, there are tens of millions of people on HIV treatment. That's been a huge success story. There was a time when HIV medicines were, you know, cost in the thousands of dollars per year per patient. And now it's in the low hundreds of dollars per year per patient. And that's that ability that the, that a number of organizations, the Clinton Health Access Initiative, UNICEF, and number, you know, and you and you know about this from a vaccine perspective as well. Like just the the way that they intentionally shape the market to drive down the cost, increase competition, improve quality, to get people on life saving medicine that they need to take for the rest of their lives. If you're HIV positive, you're on that medicine for the rest of your life. Um, so driving down the cost, be, I mean, was critical and. HIV medicines were extremely cost prohibitive, and I think they did two things. The key ones for me are the long-term revenue predictability that was made available to manufacturers. So bringing country governments together, creating advanced market commitments or long-term funding commitments for HIV medicines to suppliers that gave those suppliers the incentives to find ways to scale up manufacturing of these medicines in a way that drove down the price. When you give suppliers that level of predictability and that line of sight on revenue for multiple years, makes it it makes it possible to, for them to make the investments necessary to drive down the cost of the of a technology that's number 1 and number 2 that it, there was we have a lot of conversations in the carbon removal field right now around the importance of measurement reporting and verification i think the parallel there would be every every country has its own fda a food and drug administration equivalent but the people who are shaping this market for hiv medicines you know found a way to use global institutions like the world health organization to to enable some of these medicines to become you know be pre-qualified or become you know approved through this major institution so that you can remove that barrier and make it possible for high quality medicines to enter the market in a lot of different countries that might have taken a lot, a lot longer to get 
And so by building these institutions around quality, you can actually speed up the process of scaling something up. And, and so that was another key element, I think, that was uh, important in making HIV medicines more accessible and ultimately help drive down the cost of these medicines uh, that I think have some parallels to carbon removal. There's many things that are different, but I think those two things uh, around kind of institutions that promote quality and then long-term revenue commitments, those two things I think are very applicable to the CDR space and helping drive down the cost of carbon removal over the long term. That all makes a ton of sense. Thanks for sharing. Back to your career. So how did you actually make this switch? How did you get into a field in which you had, you know, zero experience and zero expertise? I mean, first of all, it was a really hard thing to do. You know, and I had the I had the benefit of, like I said before, you know, your support in making this happen. I think it's it's a, it was a big change for me. There was a lot of soul searching involved. So basically, you know, I finished my time at Last Mile Health. I went to grad school for a while, and then I was still kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I think for me, it was important to find a career where I wasn't traveling halfway around the world to, you know, make an impact or or, or do work anymore. Like I was kind of at a point where I just couldn't continue to travel, be away from you, be away from friends and family and, you know, in order to do work that I really care about. And so, you know, I started thinking about, I'm really privileged to get to work on stuff that's interesting to me. What else is interesting? Um, you know, what are some other interesting problems I'd like to work on that I'd love to try and, and, and help solve? And so I looked at a number of different things like you know, protecting democracy or addressing immigration challenges, learning about climate change. And I basically just learned about, you know, a number of different topics. And when I came across climate, you know, folks kind of pointed me to blogs I could read and podcasts I could listen to. And, you know, I learned I learned a lot about the general space. And I thought, this could be really interesting. This could be an interesting kind of field. Let me learn more. And I started kind of, you know, reading books and attending conferences and workshops and and what I I guess I did at the time was I was at the time consulting for you know previous employers and 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 other groups in the international development field uh and I decided I was going to kind of reduce my consulting time by half I remember you and I talked about this it's like why don't you try to kind of cut your billable consulting work in half with those and then spend the rest of your time learning about this new field and I quickly in doing that stumbled on carbon removal. And like I tell people, I feel like I stumbled on a secret. Like, wow, you can remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. That's that's really cool. And uh and and so I really started going down a rabbit hole. And I think you'll remember like me lying in bed next to me and I'm uh on my phone at like three or four in the morning learning about sinking seaweed to remove CO2 or, you know Oh yeah, I remember that. <laughs> It was just, I was fascinated by the, all of the different methods that, that were available to remove CO2 from the atmosphere and thought, wow, this is really cool. And I learned about all of the opportunities as well as the challenges with all of these different kind of approaches. And, 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 I, and so I, I realized like this is kind of where I wanted to focus. But I think what's really kept me into it in, in working in carbon removal is that there's also this kind of equity and justice angle to carbon removal that is really appealing to me and I think is a common thread with my previous career. You know, when I was working in global health and international development, what anchored me in that field was this idea that I think that people should have access to healthcare, that, you know, we need to improve equitable access to healthcare, uh, no matter where you live. And with climate, it was like, you know, 
we have a responsibility to clean up this mess we've made because it's going to, you know, disproportionately impact people who've done the least to cause this problem, right? And so we need to stop emitting CO2 in, into the atmosphere as quickly and as aggressively as possible. And we need to clean up the mess we've made over the last several hundred years because the CO2 that we emit hundreds of years ago is still hanging out in part of our atmosphere today. So we have a responsibility to clean up this mess. And when I saw it from that equity angle that it's not just an environmental problem, that working on climate is, is about people, that's what for me was like, wow, okay, that's something clicked. Like this is important. And that's what kept me kind of working in the field and excited about the field. And, uh, and so that's, that just really cemented my interest in this place. I know I'm taking forever to answer this question. Um, um, so I, I would, at that point, would talk to any organization that was even remotely connected to carbon removal or carbon utilization. I would reach out to organizations and I would talk to people and I would ask, you know, two questions. Number one, what's a problem or what's a project that you wish you had more time to work on right now? And number two, who else do you think I should speak to? And so, you know, I, I just basically started talking to people and I started, you know, learning what, what, what they cared about and what they needed help with. And eventually, you know, had an opportunity with Clean Air Task Force and Carbon 180 on a couple of my initial projects where we were able to see some of the alignment of my previous skills with some of the things that they cared about and that they were working on. And that just became my first set of clients that I was able to build on. So I'm very grateful to both of those organizations because I wouldn't be working in this space if it weren't for them. But it just kind of snowballed from there and I had an opportunity to to then seek out more and more organizations that were interested in carbon removal and point to previous work that I'd done with these two organizations uh, to build a consulting practice. And so that's what I did with Carbon Curve. And, and you know, now I've had, I, I don't know, well over a dozen, you know, clients in this space um, focused primarily on carbon dioxide removal from a policy or from a carbon markets point of view um, and helping figure out this question I'm really passionate about, which is how do we scale up? in a responsible and rapid way, this essential pillar of addressing climate change. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, particularly impressive because I remember some of the initial projects you took on were actually unpaid. And I think it's really hard for folks to come to terms with the fact that a career is not always going to be a straight upward trajectory. Um, And sometimes you have to take a step back. Sometimes you have to do an unpaid, you know, project. So I'm wondering if you could just speak a bit to how you think about all of that. Yeah. Some of my my early work um, was was unpaid uh, initially. And I guess, again, like I think I was lucky to have like, you know, to have the ability to say, okay, I'm going to cut my hours and have the flexibility to say I can cut my hours with my existing work that is paid in half so that I can go do these other projects that are either I'm charging less than I normally would, or I'm not charging at all for. And that was hard, but it's just, I think it's just like, you've got to start somewhere, you know, you've just, you've got to start. And, and then you can kind of decide how to move things forward. I think a lot of people spend a lot of time trying to like mental map out the perfect, like, you know, the perfect path trajectory in a new field. And I just don't think you can really do that. I just think you've got to start. You know, you've got to just start. And, and I, I, I want to also point out, like, I was privileged enough to be able to be like, hey, I can afford to take, you know, a half pay, you know, consulting, like with your income and with 
half of my income, we could still make it work. And so I was lucky to do that. I don't think a lot of people have that ability to be flexible. So like putting that out there, like absolutely was lucky to have that opportunity. I, I think though that the the one lesson that, that I think is applicable to, to just about everyone is like, if you can find an opportunity to just start something, um, start working in some way with, you don't need to have a clear picture of what exactly it's going to look like years from now, or, you know, that it's going to, you know, be a clear step up from what you were doing before and just accept that whatever it is, it's going to look different and you just need to start somewhere um, and then iterate as you go on. One other thing I remember about the early part of your career transition is that you were just always talking to, to people. You would cold call people, you would cold email people, um, and you were just constantly trying to get to know different companies and people and what they were working on. And I think for an introverted person like yourself, I remember being very impressed and surprised that you were just constantly putting you, you, you yourself out there so much. And I'm wondering if you can speak to that. You know, for me as a person who stutters, I think the idea of doing that feels really daunting. And I'm wondering if people out there um, who maybe don't have that challenge also feel the same way? Well, I think that, yeah, the challenge is different for me than I think for, for you or for anyone else. And like, I think we all approach it our own way. Have you seen this like meme on Twitter where it's like an introvert schedule and it's like introverts call is like a, there's a block for an hour and then there's like three hours before it's like prep for, for call and then three hours after the call it's like, like, I don't know what it is, like crash after call or something like that. Do you yep, remember that? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> That's definitely me. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm very introverted. It makes talking to people really like daunting. I think for me, one thing I try to do is I try to have like a little script in front of me. I, I like I try to have like an agenda. I have try to have a few bullet points in front of me. That makes kind of, you know, conversations with folks a little less intimidating. If I can do like a one-on-one -on -one call, or one-on-one -on -one meeting, like I think I, as an introvert, I can manage that and I can handle that pretty well. It's those like one-to-many like interactions or like those big networking events or whatever that I'm just like, and I think because I made so much of this transition happen during COVID, none of that stuff was happening in the early days of COVID. So it was like a lot of one-to-one -one conversations. And I think I really capitalized on that as a way to, to build networks in the space. All right. So maybe we transition a little bit away from talking about your career path so far and focus on how you see the future of carbon removal. So I'm curious, what is your biggest fear about the field? So my biggest fear with carbon removal long term, I think, is that we don't get the measurement reporting and verification systems right. Uh, for the variety of new methods that are emerging. And I think that's really important because we need to be able to say the carbon dioxide that is being removed from the atmosphere, that we have a way of measuring that, that we have a way of verifying that, and that it's also being stored away in a durable fashion and that the risk of reversal is low. And that can take a lot of time and be particularly complex with certain methods versus, you know, versus more incumbent methods. And so my concern is if we don't get that right, then, you know, we risk losing credibility as an industry. 
And in losing credibility as an industry, the risk is that we don't see carbon removal scale potential realized long term because it doesn't have a high degree of credibility um, and because there's not a lot of accountability applied to the actors working in the space. And so while it feels like it's a lot of work to get done in the front end of building this entire new industry that, you know, Rob Niven from Carbon Cure will say it needs to be roughly the size of the global concrete industry. So there's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of scaling to be done. But without these these systems in place, we won't be able to win this kind of long game of scaling carbon removal to the scale we need to get it to for it to have a meaningful climate impact. Yeah, I think that's a, a super important point. And, you know, it wasn't until some of the conversations that we've had that I really got to thinking about how hard it actually is to measure the amount of carbon dioxide that you're permanently touring. Um, you know, I think about seaweed and how hard it must be to measure how much carbon dioxide they're absorbing once, you know, these plants sink to the bottom of the ocean. Like, how do you even measure that? And and there's the companies that are trying to figure that out. But then it's like, okay, it's not even just about how do you measure that, but then how do you measure that cost effectively? And what's a level of uncertainty that we're willing to tolerate because we're not going to be able to measure that right down to the gram? You know, I had a good interview with Shashank Samala, the CEO of Heirloom, who is just like, listen, with direct air capture, measurement and verification is pretty straightforward. We can put a flow meter on this thing and we can like measure exactly how much CO2 has been removed from the atmosphere. And he's right about that. But direct air capture is also a very energy intensive and expensive process. And so we, we're going to want some of these other CDR methods to work, but they've got to get over this hurdle of getting the measurement reporting and verification right. Yeah. And so it sounds like, you know, the cost of the actual technology is not the only thing that needs to come down the cost curve, but the cost to actually sustainably and effectively and accurately measure what it's doing too needs to, you know, as well become more cost effective. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's, that's an, and that's a big thing that I think we haven't figured out yet. And I think some people are working on trying to solve that problem by, you know, using models and modeling and like predictive analytics and, you know, and, you know, maybe we don't need to directly measure everything. Like then we have to figure out, well, then what's the right combination of modeling and direct measurement and samples and all of this other stuff that we need to get right in order to get to a place where we all feel comfortable about where we are with MRV with some of these other methods where it's a lot harder to, you know, actually measure the CO2 that was removed. And, and then how do we, how do we keep these systems in place over the long term so that the CO2 we have removed and stored away that it's actually staying where we say it is and that it's not, you know, uh, returning to the atmosphere or whatever the case is. And so then there's, you know, whose responsibility is it to make sure that the CO2 that was removed and stored away, uh, is actually being stored away for X number of years, you know, that becomes a whole different conversation as well. So there's an, a whole like industry that can be built around measurement, reporting, and verification for carbon dioxide removal. So it's very exciting times, but it's also very, very complex and potentially very costly for certain methods. And we need to be building that in, in terms of how we think about how much carbon removal costs. Yeah, great. 
So curious to hear what your favorite carbon removal technology is and why. Um, that's hard. I think my favorite uh, carbon removal technology more broadly is like photosynthesis, right? Like I know that. What? Yeah. Like, like we have natural processes that remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. I don't think we should be using them as offsets or whatever in my in my own view but you know that's an it's an amazing natural process that already exists and there's there are you know countless plants that do this for us already does um, this mean you're actually in favor of nature based solutions yeah i like nature based solutions i think it's great the i i don't like the i don't like nature-based engineered taxonomy i think that's you know that doesn't make any sense to me like it's really caught on and people i think because people generally understand it but like for me it's like if you can find a way to make this measurable additional and permanent like i don't care what it is right so for me i i love i love anything that is like naturally attuned to to doing this already interesting myself i'm personally more of an ocean CDR person. You're an ocean CDR person. I am. I just think it's so cool. What What about ocean CDR is interesting to you? I mean, just the idea that you can take things like seaweed and kelp that naturally exists and create these farms where you just, you know, have a plant that's useful and then at the same time it removes carbon it's just incredible yeah i think that's really cool and then think i think about all of the places in the world that like know how to do this well right all the coasts that we have that are just perfect spaces for this yeah that's cool i ocean cdr is cool i it's like honestly the i guess the suite of cdr methods that i'm least familiar with and that i'm trying to learn more about but like the ocean covers 70 percent surface so we need to find a way to use what the ocean you know brings to the table to like help solve this problem it can't be just all land-based exactly exactly okay so if you had the opportunity to start your own cdr company that's not a consulting firm what would that company do ah that's a good question i think like in, in the immediate term like I'm really interested in like how do we how do we set the table for carbon removal more broadly, right? Like it's such a nascent field, and so like any work that I would be able to do that would help, whether through policy or market based mechanisms, help like establish a platform on which we can build out this industry would be would be interesting to me. But when I think about like what kind of company would I want to start, you know, I think it'd be really cool to be a carbon removal project developer, like to think about like. In the years ahead, we're going to get more information about the carbon removal methods that work and don't work, the carbon removal methods that are cost-effective and not, or that have ecological challenges and don't. We're going to learn so much about all of these different approaches to CDR and like their their benefits and their risks. And there's going to be some that rise to the surface, and it would be really cool to be you know an actual project developer. Like for example, like you know, there's a really interesting opportunity to utilize you know kenya's excess geothermal potential as an energy input for direct air capture like something that would 
help make carbon removal a global industry, right? Like it's really important to me that the United States is not the only country where removal is being deployed. And so I think it'd be really, really interesting to create, you know, create a company that helps develop carbon removal projects based on what science is telling us are the most effective methods to carbon removal and, and implement that, you know, all around the world. I'd love to see carbon removal as an international industry, not just one where it's centered in the, you know, in the global north. Makes a lot of sense too. I'm curious if you can share what your biggest mistake has been in your work in CDR. That's a great question. And by the way, this entire podcast is completely unscripted, which I think is pretty cool for somebody who likes to work with this crypt. So yeah, I mean that question caught me off guard a bit. Um, my biggest mistake in working in carbon removal so far. What about that time you left that guy off the report? No, no, that's not it. Well, it wouldn't have caught you off guard if you'd looked at the list of questions I sent you. You know, one thing, yeah, I don't know. I think I sometimes waited too long to try stuff, um, you know, because I, I didn't really need to do it. So, for example, like, you know, I, I like launched the Carbon Curve website just this past year, and I could have done that like a couple of years ago. Or, you know, the Substack I could have started sooner, or the podcast I could have started sooner, or all of these sorts of things that I was like, oh, I should really do that. I'll get to that eventually, but I don't need it right now because I was busy with clients and I was like, I didn't need to do it from a business development standpoint. But like, I've learned a lot in just generating content and putting kind of my work out there and my profile out there that like, even if I, even if it didn't have a, an immediate conversion potential for me converting into new business, I think it was, it's just been a lot of learning. And I think that it's an, been an opportunity to learn publicly. It's been an opportunity to meet more people. And so it's, it's added a lot of value and, how I engage in this space. And I think the mistake I've made is I just waited too long to do some of this stuff because I didn't see an immediate payoff. And I think now I'm trying to be like, okay, but what, what makes sense for to kind of build for the longer term? And that's a good enough reason to just start. Mm -hmm. That is true. Absolutely. Switching gears a bit here. So it's no secret that climate change and especially CDR is kind of white male dominated. So I'm curious to hear from you how it feels to be a person of color in this space and what you think it will take to kind of improve diversity and inclusion in this CDR field. I think for me, one thing that you'd hear a lot about, and you don't hear it as much now, but when I was first kind of shifting into working on climate, you'd hear a lot of people say, climate is, you know, all hands on. We all have to do something. We all have to get engaged on working on this problem. And for me, it's kind of like, okay, that makes sense. Like addressing climate change is such a big problem that it has to include everybody. But then like that necessarily means that organizations or companies should represent the entire spectrum of people that we want to get on board with this, right? So I, I think what I worry about is that we say something like addressing climate change is all hands on deck, but then like the people who run the companies and organizations and investment funds and philanthropies and 
governments and so on that make all the decisions around what we do about climate just look like one subset of that entire population. And so I think what we're going to need to do is really actively stop saying this is all hands on deck until we've really tried to show where we mean it when we say it's all hands on deck. And that means that, you know, groups of people who've been historically left out of decisions around how to address address some of these environmental challenges in the past, that they're actually part of the solution is going to be really important. I think for me, it's been, you know, it's it's hard though, because it's been like, for me, it's like, not only do I come to this work as someone who does not have a educational background in this space or many years of work experience in this space, it makes it just that that the transition that much more uphill. And so what I'd like to see is just more people in leadership positions that are people of color, are, you know, kids of immigrants, are people from indigenous communities, are all of these different kind of groups that we're saying, hey, this is all hands on deck. We all have to do something here. That's a great point. You know, we have to stop saying things that are mostly performative and actually create the space to include different voices and perspectives. And and I think that's a a really important place to start, for sure. Yeah. You know, we've talked a lot about this, not just within this industry, but, you know, in other other fields as well. And I think you've always been very, very clear-headed around like what this looks like and how do you, how do you create an actually inclusive industry? Um, You know, you think about this, I'm sure, from a vantage point of like, how do you do international development and global health? And how do you empower, you know, countries to take charge of what they want their, their, their countries to look like and not reinforce some of their like kind of colonial tendencies in the past as part of international development work today? How do you make this space more inclusive of more people and, 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 and which would have the added benefit of just driving so much energy and dynamism and innovation and scale? On, on addressing some of the, this massive problem. But if it feels like there are a set of gatekeepers around addressing climate change, then we won't get as far as we need to. And the, like you said, like the voices and perspectives of so many people will just go completely unheard. Yeah, and of course, there's a lot we could say on that topic, but I will maybe just say a, a quote here that, you know, I think if we tend to hold this as close as possible, it'll make all of our work a lot more effective. And that quote is, nothing for us without us. And so, you know, if you're looking to reduce the effects of climate change on a coastal community in Bangladesh, you know, don't start that conversation without people from that place. And so I think that's a one pretty simple tactic to have close by. Yeah, good guiding principle. Exactly. So curious if you can look back a bit on 2022 and share your reflections on some of the most exciting things that have happened in carbon removal. I think 2022 is a massive year for carbon removal. And I said that, I think, in 2021, and I hope I can say that again in 2023. I think the biggest things for me in 2022 were just impressive policy wins that we've seen here in the U.S. 
And I think we need to see other countries catch up, which is going to be exciting because it's good when countries catch up on, on, on policies that are advanced in one country and spreading that impact around, I think is good. I think uh, obviously, you know, the, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act and the changes to 45Q I think would be really big for direct air capture. I think that's a really, really huge development. So the increase in the 45Q tax credit and the increase in number of, of projects that would really qualify given the changes in some of the thresholds around 45Q and I can, you know, without getting into deep into this, this new tax credit, we can throw something in the show notes around this. The Bipartisan Policy Center did a great kind of overview of the Inflation Reduction Act more generally. But yeah, I think the policy wins on the carbon removal side are really big. And then looking ahead to the future, you know, what do you think um, are some of the most important things that people in this CDR field should be focusing on for 2023? Yeah, I think the focus in 2023 is going to be around how do we implement and deploy carbon removal in the context of, you know, we have the DAC hubs program finally getting underway. We have the Inflation Reduction Act 45Q tax credits, you know, in, you know, in motion. And so now it's going to be like, how do we actually responsibly deploy projects based on these policy wins that we've seen over the last year? And so the focus I think in 2023 that I'm, I'm excited about is companies actually advancing new projects and starting new projects and doing so in consultation with communities and in doing so in a way that helps them take advantage of some of these policies that have been developed, I think that that's going to be the major focus in 2023. And um, and then the other thing that I'm interested in 2023 is like, we've seen these policy wins around carbon removal in 2022. And what I'd really like to see is what do other countries do in response what does Canada do in response? What does the UK or the EU do in response to some of these really impressive set of policies that have been, have been put in place that support the carbon removal sector here in the US? So what would you say is w- one really salient or influential moment in your l- life that you think back t- to a lot? I mean, as you well know, we just had a son this year, Rumi. Um, he's now nine and a half months old. And like, that's a very salient moment because that was just totally and completely life-changing for a variety of reasons. And I think it's something I think back to because it was just like your whole life suddenly changes in front of you and your whole set of priorities change. It makes you just kind of appreciate family in a way that I probably didn't as much in the past. And it forces you to be as a, you know, as a new parent, like just present with this child. There's just no choice. This, you know, this child needs you right now and you need to be present. And, you know, it doesn't give you a lot of time to be kind of like head in the clouds. You know, you've got to be, you've got to be there. And as someone who's got his head in the clouds, a lot of the time, it's kind of hard to make that adjustment. And so I you know for me, like the fact that we, you know, brought this new person into the world 
uh, and get to watch him grow every day and do wonderful new things every day and um, and just have to be there for him every day, you know, is something that has been just t- totally transformative for me, um, for us as a family. So that's been, I don't know, that's been really, I, I can't even think of something that even compares in terms of just what has had an impact on and what would you say has been the most challenging thing about balancing being a parent and then also, you know, having your own removal consulting practice? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that's been really challenging is just finding a balance between, um, you know, investing time in building my consulting practice and making sure that, you know, I'm present and I'm around and I'm fully there for this little guy who depends on us so significantly and who we just love and adore and care about so much. So that's been, you know, that's been hard in a way because, uh, you know, building Carbon Curve before having a child, you know, took up a lot of my brain space. And now that brain space is much more limited and so, you know, just trying to find a way to balance this entirely new person in our lives um, and making sure that he's the priority without, you know, without totally sinking my business, <laughs> that's been that's been really hard. And so what gives you the strength to keep going? I think reminding myself that I get this amazing privilege to just work on something that I care about is something that keeps me going. You know, like I'm really, really passionate about this field and I have the kind of love and support of my family. I have, um, you know, the respect and companionship of the carbon removal community. You know, all of those things have been really central in helping me, um, you know, keep going through the hard times. It's like that inner drive and inner passion for this space. The fact that I have a really kind and loving and caring family and, uh, and then the broader community of people within carbon removal, wherever they work, whether that's, um, an NGOs or private companies or whatever the case is, you know, there's an amazing community of people who work in this space. And the fact that I get to work with them every day, I think has made it possible to just find that fuel to keep going when we're exhausted and struggling to, you know, not be a zombie throughout the course of the day because we've had a hard night with the kid or whatever the case is. So, yeah. So we're coming to the end of our time here, but what can folks expect to see from the carbon curve? So I have a bit of a disappointing answer on that because I honestly don't know. I wanted to take this this time that we're recording, like we're recording at the end of December right now, I was hoping to spend some time in January figuring out what does the carbon curve look like. I'd love to do more writing. Like I might put off some of the podcast stuff and get back to writing um, a bit more around carbon removal more generally. And so I think that's where I'd like to focus some of my time and where I think people will see more from me. But otherwise, I don't really know. I, I I think it's like really a good time right now to just hit the pause button. You know, I've, I've hit 2000 subscribers to the newsletter, about 11, 12,000 podcast downloads, uh, so far. 
after 17 or 16 episodes or whatever the number is now, like it's, it's been a really successful year for the carbon curve. And now I just want to take some time to figure out like, where do I want to apply my focus and time and energy for 2023 in order to just keep adding value to the space? Like, what does that look? And so, yeah, really like unsatisfying answer, but I just don't know what that looks like. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And thank you so much for allowing me to flip the script and interview you. And thanks for being so honest. I wasn't expecting all of that. Wow. Yeah. I know. Thank you for like caring enough to want to interview me for my own podcast. No, it was so fun. I, I think you're you're excellent at this and should definitely do all the future Carbon Curve podcasts. Um, you're a way better interviewer than I am. I don't know about that. <laughs> but like, no, but like you've always taken a really special interest in this in this field. And I know that you find it genuinely interesting, but I also know you're, you're like very supportive and interested and care about my career. And so I just... Like the fact that you would actually want to sit down with me for, I guess this is turning into like two hours at this point. I don't know how long the final edited episode will be to just talk to me about carbon removal. Like not, my best friends wouldn't do that for me. So oh, thank it's you. It's my absolute pleasure. We wish you all a happy holidays. Yeah. And happy new year when this comes out. And thank you to all of my subscribers and everyone who's been listening and following along on the carbon curve. This has been a great journey, and I couldn't have done it without all of the great supporters, uh, the one here in the podcast room, as well as all those listening, and just wishing you all the best in the new year. Bye, everyone.